I never was like, I'm going to create my own style. You know, you just do the best you can and be willing to do the work. But when you have, when you're not spoon fed and you transcribe yourself and you have to figure out these scales and all that stuff yourself, then you're, then you're getting closer to having something that's, that's yours. Hey everyone, it's Keith Billick here welcoming you to another episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I sincerely hope everyone is hanging in there okay and and maintaining your sanity. I know it's a challenging time for a lot of us and I hope to be able to uh, take your mind off of that for the next hour and, and give us some happier topics to think about such as well, banjo, the, the, the happiest topic of them all. So yeah, let's, let's dive into the banjo content. But uh, that being said, I don't want us to forget about being able to try to support any of our friends out there who maybe rely uh, typically on music performance to make their living or various other occupations that are, their flight has been grounded, let's say. I know I've been watching quite a few of these like Facebook or YouTube live streams that people are putting on now as they're sort of the new model for playing a, a concert. And I just look at that as an extension of trying to make the most out of a really weird and unfortunate situation is that all of a sudden now we can watch musicians play for us that are, they don't need to tour to your home city. They can be sitting in their living room anywhere in the world and we get to watch them and hopefully whenever possible throw them uh, whatever kind of tip we can afford and help them out along the way. So thanks to everyone who's doing that and let's try to keep supporting each other and making the most of it. So here's a good example of something going on right now. I can't find any of my old friends hanging around Well, nothing brings you down like your own town And I spent some time in New Orleans Yeah, that's literally happening right now. That's a, a friend of mine and a fantastic banjo player, Mark Cassidy. And I'm, I get to watch him from all the way out in Los Angeles. And I, I said he's a good banjo player, and that's true i don't know what he's doing with that guitar uh he needs to he'd probably get way more tips if he if he switches over to banjo here but um that's that's up to him you know but at any rate the point being we can see cool musicians playing for us right in our homes from all over the world and uh kind of a crazy opportunity in response to crazy times so so there you have it and speaking about helping each other uh, I don't do this without help either. I rely on listeners for any and all support of the podcast. And this week I have two uh, such listeners to acknowledge for their for their amazing support. Uh, first one is Joshua Stewart from the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area, banjo player for Genesee Ridge. He's been playing for about 30 years and really happy to have him not only as a listener, but as a Patreon supporter. Uh, the other one is Dan Biger, and I don't know a whole lot about Dan other than he must be a very sophisticated listener to have selected a great podcast to support, such as the Picky Fingers. So Joshua and Dan, thank you both so much. Uh, if you all want to help them out in supporting this podcast and making sure these episodes can keep uh, coming out periodically, please go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and 
basically only it only takes like a dollar a month to to really help me out and that that is important to me it does it does help me out i do notice it and it is much appreciated let me tell you uh but for you you can look at the different tier levels of support for only four dollars a month there's a fantastic banjo player named eli gilbert who makes custom lessons for each episode that comes out and this one's no different you're going to get sent a a video and also a tablature sheet made by eli based on this episode's guest and he does that for all the episodes for any supporters who are only four dollars per month or more and then also some some other offers on that page so patreon.com slash banjo podcast uh if you'd like to help support what i do and that means a lot to me so i really appreciate you all uh, checking that out Today's guest is the one and only Ron Block. You probably know him the best from his work with Allison Krauss and Union Station as the banjo player and guitarist and songwriter. And if that was all he did, he would be one of the most influential modern bluegrass banjo players. But he's already got his hands in so many other things, too, ranging from peaceful acoustic guitar instrumentals. That's his newest album which he's going to talk a bit about he has a double banjo bluegrass meets irish tenor crossover type of project with damien o'kane he's going to talk about that too and he's put out just so much great stuff that it's easy to see how well deserving he is he's won numerous grammy awards numerous ibma awards cma awards all that stuff but uh perhaps the most noteworthy praise that he's received is just through all of the other guests that I've had on the podcast who just really look up to him as the pinnacle of bluegrass banjo style and as a a real big influence on their playing. And I actually just noticed today going through his website at uh, ronblock.com that he's offering uh, Skype lessons. So any of you who look up to him and think you might want to learn firsthand from one of the real masters check that out and it's you know it just goes along with this theme of amazing opportunities that we have that maybe weren't available before so yeah you can learn right from ron block i'm pretty sure he's guaranteeing fame and fortune with with all of his online lessons so if you're interested in any of that uh please check that out but i know you'll really enjoy hearing all of the wisdom that he has to share he goes right for it and you can tell that he's thought a lot about his technique and musicianship and he shares a lot throughout this interview so here it is my interview with ron block of allison krauss and union station Is this your 
special plush reindeer friend that you brought along, or was this already here? Yes, uh, it goes with me everywhere. It's your little comfort, yeah, comfort uh, yeah. animal. <laughs> yeah, great. No, well, he was sitting on the bench when I got here, so good. I good just banjo sl- companion. Yeah, I slid him over sideways. Is, is he? A, does he approve of your guitar and banjo playing so uh, far? I think he's deaf by now. So. Oh, good. <laughs> Because I've I've blasted him with the banjo. Oh, good. Well, that's that's one way to make it sound better, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, why don't you start just by giving us some background? Tell us who you are, where you're from, and and how you came to fall in love with playing music and the banjo. Well, I uh, was raised in Southern California and Northern California. Um, at about about age ten, I wanted a guitar. My dad had a music store, mm-hmm. so I was always seeing, you know guys play music and i think that's where i got the idea did you spend a lot of time in the store not a ton but you know when 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 i was staying with my dad you know my parents split up i was about six i think and when i was when i would stay with my dad i'd go with him to the store lots of times so i just hang around there so there were always guys sitting around playing guitars and was this a a relatively Acoustic oriented store or is this drums and guitar it, it center? It was kinda? everything. Okay. And it was mostly like, you know, Southern California rock and roll. It was the height of, you know, Skinner and, and um, Foreigner and ACDC and okay. you know, all that stuff was going on at that time. So I, I always say, later I worked there and I always say I polished, I polished all those old guitars that are now worth. You know, two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, and retirement. They, and, and, yeah, funds, and they basically. and they would have gone. You know, they were they were going for like two thousand dollars. And I, yeah. uh, well, it's maybe ironic isn't the right word, but it's a coincidence that we're recording this in in Lansing. I lived here for a while and worked at uh, Elderly up yeah, the street, yeah. so we we have a little bit of some some common experience there. Right. Yeah, just holding in wonder some of these gems, which. Yeah. Like you said, not worth quite as much when you were polishing them. But right, right. Yeah, well, that's really cool. Yeah, I, so I, I got a guitar when I was about 11. Dad bought me a, just a really cheap classical because he was always a, of the mindset that get him a cheap guitar, and then if he likes it, then I'll get him a better guitar, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. So I played that, but I didn't, I'd never heard bluegrass yet. I hadn't heard bluegrass. And uh, at about 12, I think, I heard Lester Flat with his band I think it was the CMA Awards or something. It was there, there was like a bluegrass thing, or maybe it was Hee Haw or some show like that. Something on TV. It was something on TV, and I just was struck by the banjo. Yeah, and who who was playing? I banjo think it was him? Haskell McCormick. Okay, and um, but just that it was just that you know kind of that sound of that kind of driving you know bluegrass sound. And did your uh, father's shop? carry banjos was that part uh, of the stock there not really okay. I, I don't think so he may have had a couple uh-huh. but um so you know I, ba- I bugged him and bugged him and bugged him and dad can yeah. i have a banjo dad when are you gonna get me a banjo dad, can I have a-? And, and i think it was either for my birthday or for christmas i can't remember uh-huh. which um and then you know dad says i got you a banjo when you were 13 and you didn't come out of your room till you were 21 which it was kind of true like you know i became obsessed with it oh that's great yeah how did so you went straight for the relatively traditional bluegrass and that's what you tried to learn right away. no it was more you know dad bought me a few records i had one of the early country gentleman records and i was just listening to anything and trying to learn anything and Mm -hmm. i and then after playing for a little while, I actually I worked through some of Pete Warnick's bluegrass banjo book. That was mm-hmm. a, that's a great book because yeah. he breaks yeah, it, it down. Is. It still is. It's still great. He breaks it down in such a way that I was able to go, oh, 
its roles, and then you kind of find the melody, and then you know he it was a great way to start. He goes beyond the basics really well too. Yeah, it's yeah. um. You know, if you if you really work your way through that book, you'll come out of it like a solid intermediate player, yeah, I think. Yeah, so. yeah. And then I had the Earl Scruggs book as well. Okay. You know, I was just kind of wandering in whatever, you know, kind of banjo. I, I was even learning Clawhammer back at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but no bands I was in ever used it. So I just it, I ended up not doing it. You okay. Know? But um, I was just into everything, you know, uh, everything banjo and bluegrass. Uh, but then I had I had some friends, and also I took lessons from John Hickman. Oh wow! And I oh, also had, also had friends that were feeding me like Stanley Brothers and and Flat and Scruggs and uh, Live Larry Sparks and you know all this kind of stuff that was the the harder more I guess you would say more authentic, but I don't that's not really a good word. But like the stuff that had the real rootedness mm-hmm. and that's the that's what really set me on fire sort of those I, first and second generation yeah type it, of there's bands. just something about the, the just the they were creating that music mm-hmm. and nobody had ever done anything like that with a banjo before i mean there was snuffy jenkins and there was you know the different three finger players I, you know but to that extent no one had ever created this rippling on the banjo before. Nobody had done that. Yeah, there was definitely that sea change in whatever, 45 or 46. Yeah, it was massive. And so, you know, and and so I was just in trance. Hickman, I was at Hickman's place taking a lesson, um, and the lesson basically consisted of him showing me uh, live real real to reels of Flat and Scruggs and Jimmy Martin and oh, he was just cool. playing me all this cool stuff and then he I'll never forget this he he we finished and you know he always let the lessons always ran over you know he he oh, was yeah, he was cool. always great to me um, and we finished and he took all those reel to reels and put them in a box uh-huh. and he said take them home and get a tape player uh, you know find a reel to reel player somebody borrow, let you borrow one and. And just dub and them all dub off. Dub them off, and I dubbed them all off, and I ate and slept and breathed those live, all that live stuff for. I mean, I still have oh, all. The, cool. I still have all the cassettes, but now a lot of that stuff's available on YouTube and all that. But it, it, I drove around the Southern California highways listening to what a gold J, mine to, the New South and to have just handed to you. That's, yeah, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah, Flat and Scruggs live, and it was always interesting to hear Earl live because he took more chances. Oh, he do right. he do just all of a sudden you go where did that come from where whereas on the you know the the recordings you know they're cutting to whatever they cut into wax or whatever and it's like they only get so many chances you're not going to overdub your solo yeah, twenty times yeah exactly yeah. so he he couldn't take the, the that amount of chances yeah so, how yeah. interesting yeah um does it so of all those guys does anybody in particular stick out as somebody who really influenced your playing or that you were trying specifically to emulate? Uh, definitely Earl. Mm-hmm. And then J.D., definitely. Certainly okay. J.D. Crow. And then there was, there's lots more. I mean, Sonny Osborne, I always... He, the cool thing about growing up in Southern California mm-hmm. at that time is all those guys would come out to Norco and and Grass Valley and those California uh-huh. festivals. So I got to see Larry Sparks back then and, yeah. and Ralph Stanley'd come out and you know, and that's I was just on fire for all that. So how long before you actually had people to to play with and get some of this 
energy out of your system. Well, until- I, th- I, th- I was just a room, uh, you know, sitting in my room playing right. until I started going to Norco Festival. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember if it was the first or second time I went. I think it was the first time I went. Uh, there was an older couple there. And you know they they were having a jam at their place, and and of course I didn't I'd never jammed, so I didn't have I didn't know jam etiquette, I didn't know, and so I was just kind of hanging back because mm-hmm. I was like, well I don't know how this works, so I don't want to get in there and just blast away, sure, and annoy everybody, so I'm just going to sit back here on this bench ten feet away and you know play lightly on my banjo. Yeah. Well, you know it wasn't five minutes later the the older couple said, hey come up here and play, you know, and so then we played for hours and hours, you know. In a jam, there was probably, I don't remember how many people were there, but there were a bunch of people there. Looking back at it, if somebody out there is in a relatively similar position to you where maybe they've been practicing a lot on, in their room and they're nervous about getting out to do that, what would you, I don't know, what would you, what would you say? It seems like you took the right approach where nudge in slowly and don't try to overstep uh, yeah. your boundaries. Or, yeah, don't or be whatever. a show-off. Like uh-huh. that. And that's, I think that's one thing that, like, has always been part of my mentality. I mean, show off when it's time to show off. You know, I mean, within reason. You know, like if you have to play a solo and you want to play an exciting solo, play an exciting solo. Yeah. But don't don't be uh, jumping in a jam and cramming the banjo down everybody's throat. You know, sure. Sure. So it was it was good. So I ended up joining their band. They asked me that night, "Hey, do you want to play in our band?" You know, and I didn't even really know how to end songs. Okay. Like I hadn't progressed like, to that point <laughs> where I like knew how it all worked, you know. But playing in their playing in their band, it was called Yankee Bluegrass of all things. Yeah, that's but pretty But playing funny. in their band was um, it was a great learning experience for me, you know, because I'd mm-hmm. go home and I'd work on stuff and I, I'd learn more, learn more, and I'd come back and we'd we'd we kind of practiced every Thursday and yeah, played, uh, played just, gigs on the weekends and and the and Terry knew how to get. You know, like State Fair and all these like farmers market and all these different kind of gigs. And yeah. it's like I was a teenager working for my dad during the week and I was rolling in the dough like for a teenager. <laughs> oh, I was that, like how great. making money on the weekends and making money during the yeah, week. Yeah, double dipping. That's yeah, so double cool. dipping. Yeah. 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 When did you start noticing your own style come out of all this? You know, I never I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. I was like, all through my teen years, I was just into what I was into. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, I, I would transcribe, and I transcribed like crazy. So, you know, I'd hear an Earl Scruggs solo, and go, i got to figure that out. And there was no amazing slowdown or any of that stuff. You were, it was a cassette, and you press play, and then oh. you listen to four notes, and you stop it, and you rewind, and you go back too far, and you go, and then you forward, and you go forward too far, and then you go back, and then you hit the three notes again four notes you know and you figure it out and then maybe if you're lucky you got one of them and then you yeah. do it again and try to get the second one yeah know. and it involved a lot of like listen i i listened all the time i mean i didn't i listened to music all the time so that helped mm-hmm. but i would transcribe and um and learn things from earl scruggs jd crow sonny osborne um and then, you know, uh, uh, Alan Shelton, plenty of other... There was mm-hmm. a bunch of other banjo players in there as well. Alan Mundy. Yeah. I liked anybody that had that, that kind of like... It was like... It has that, you know, that thing. The groove. The groove, that's what I was... Yeah. Like. So I always looked for banjo players where I'd go, that's it, that's that thing. 
Well, it's yeah. really um, it's really curious that you that you studied with Hickman because as soon as you said that, I'm I'm just going through some of the stuff I've heard him play, and it does sound like the stuff you do with the just the funky bounce. Yeah. Funky chicken that yeah, uh, yeah. that he has yeah and there's he has a lot a of groovy, stuff that sounds like stuff I've heard you do so yeah he has kind of a grooving thing too right you know, when he plays so I never thought of I never was like I'm going to create my own style you know <laughs> because I think I think if people do that self consciously it ends up being sometimes it's not a style it's like self conscious and if if you're simply into this, is what I did, I was into what I was into. Mm-hmm. So I was into traditional bluegrass. I was into Scruggs, Crow, and all those guys. And then in my mid to late teens, you know, I'm going to the work at the music store. I'm listening to ACDC and okay. Foreigner and Leslie West and Eric Clapton and all these electric guitar players that are. You know, Jeff yeah. Beck. Right, so I'm listening to all that stuff, during you know when I'm working at the store. So so eventually, I I, I think I was about 18. I wanted an electric guitar. Okay. So I got an electric guitar, and I, I've always been just like a closet electric player. I've played on some of Allison's stuff, you know, yeah. uh, here and there. But um, that the things that I that struck me were the, usually the things, as Allison would say, that hit me below the neck. Ah. Like, it's the stuff that, that's gutsy, it's raw, it's emotional, it's, it's, uh, and it hits you. And it's not, it's not uh, music that is solely head. Right. You know? So I was, I was always looking for that stuff that had a real gutsy feeling. And I think if a person is true to the things that they like that really hit them, well, if you take five different kinds of music that you love and you listen to it all the time, and then when you play, you just go, oh, yeah, that's that thing from that Brazilian band or whatever. Like, and you're just into that, and uh-huh. you're not self-consciously trying to shove it into your style. It'll all just come out, and it'll be, you'll, you'll have your own style if you're just loving the things that you love. So, so we were uh, – yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So we were talking – just a minute ago about your your style that consists a lot of slides and bends and why you know your your string maintenance is, is important for yeah. that it sounds like that was not too conscious to play clapton and jeff beck no licks on the banjo it's just uh you thought that would sound cool to do some of that yeah and, and i just and started it, doing it yeah you know and i started you know i would play lots of times i would just slide You know, I would slide, mm-hmm. but but then I would start. You know, you start messing right. around with more, 
more um, bendy stuff. And you just, you know, I just, when I do that, I just go bendy. You know, I just think bendy, play bendy stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, and then, you know, the work I've done on the neck lets me do that. Mm-hmm. But but back then, it was just kind of throwing in a little thing here and there. There'd be like, uh, you know, the Ralph Stanley. Or the or Earl Scruggs, you know. Mm-hmm. Whoops. You know, that thing. But I just went, well, you can... My band strings are stretching. Anyway, so you can... Right, you can play around with this. You can play around with any like bit of music. One of the valuable things about the the uh, Pete Wernick book was it mm-hmm. showed me that it's all Lego blocks. I uh, didn't put I didn't put it in these terms until the last ten years, but like it, I realized that it, Pete Wernick in that book showed me that it's, you, it can all be broken down to the most base level. And uh, is what he means by that, so for example, what you, what you just played is you, you played that, uh, you know, the Ralph Stanley choke. Yeah, and it's um, the Foggy Mountain Breakdown. You, that right hand pattern, yeah. That's the roll, so you can go, and you know, like... Uh, as long as you're playing notes that make sense with it, yeah, you don't it wanna, can transfer. Yeah. You know, but I remember listening to Little Maggie... And with Jimmy Martin, and it was Bill Emerson. He goes, you know, it's and so you can use those modular elements mm-hmm. and combine them with other things on the neck. So, you mentioned that it was the the work that you've done on navigating the neck that allows right. you to move around. What yeah. would you? How would you describe the work? that you did that got you to where you are? Uh, you know, because I play guitar, mm-hmm. I, I kind of can have a guitaristic way of looking at the neck. And an influential book for me was Mick Goodrick's The Advancing Guitarist. All right. And Mick taught at um, Berkeley in the 70s, and he taught people like John Carlini and, you know, all these guys that, you know, and, 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 and so indirectly, Mick influenced... Uh, Tony Rice, you know, indirectly okay. through John Carlini, you know. Interesting. So, yeah, so... Now, so we're any, talking Berkeley, East Coast Berkeley, yeah, as yeah. opposed to yeah, uh, East West Coast, Coast Berkeley. East Coast. Okay. So, so um, the funny thing is, I didn't know any of that, mm-hmm. and I found this book in the in the bookstore, and it was The Advancing Guitar. I said, well, that's a great title, because I was like, I want to advance, yeah. so <laughs> I bought it. And, you know, I've never gotten through, you know, a quarter of that book. But it the the few things that I've learned from it have been invaluable in not only teaching me the neck, but also shaping the way I think about the neck. And is it mostly a jazzy book? Yeah, there's a lot of that, but it's it's like it starts you out in, with a very simple principle, and you learn. Um, he calls it the science of the unitar. So you learn scales up and down each string. Okay. So in, instead of going. Not instead of, but at first you you do it on one string. Instead of doing this, and right, that's, you, you would go. A scale all that's in a C first scale. Position, yeah. yeah, first position C scale. You would go up the first string like this. Right. Yeah. yeah the mic's in the way. 
right? And just for people who who only are able to listen to this, which is everybody, no one can see what he's doing, but uh, you, you're doing all thumb index pattern Pretty much. On, yeah. on the first string. Pretty just, much. Yeah. That's kind of the way I play single string. Mm-hmm. Uh, occasionally, I'll add in another finger. You know, I'll use my right. middle finger. Yeah, but you're you're exclusively playing that high D string, the first string. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was all so, in the key of C major. Yeah. yeah. So then he takes you, you. Then you know you learn that. You know you learn where you learn where the notes are, mm-hmm. and then you play a vamp. You would you like I would. You, I would do it on my guitar, but you would go if you were in Ionian mode, which is just major. Mm-hmm. You would go, you just play something simple like that, and then you would go, right. You just play around with the notes and kind of try to dance around and make it interesting. And you're ta- when you talk about playing that thing on guitar, you're using that as a backing track is yeah, what you're referring to? Yeah, I would to? record it okay. as a backing track. And uh, I wish I'd have been prepared. I have one on my, on my uh, iPad or something. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I definitely follow what you mean. Yeah, yeah just yeah. as a way of giving you that bed of harmony and tonality yeah, so you can experiment. to hear what these notes are. Yeah, and then you can go, that note doesn't work. That note works. And so he limits you. It's called limitation exercises. Huh. Um, but he limits you to one string. You can only do half-step bends. And then you have to make it interesting. So if you, if you sit there and do that for, you know, five minutes and you're going... Pretty soon you're getting, pretty soon you're getting bored. Uh-huh. You're like, this is getting boring. And then, but the question, that's the good thing. Because then the question is, well, how do I make it interesting? And what's the answer? Well, I mean, then, then you go, well, maybe I'll work on vibrato. So you go. You know, you play around with it, or you go, I'm going to do half-step bends. You know. Now, are you allowed, within this limitation exercise, are you allowed to do half-step bends that take you out of the key? No, you have to stay in the key. Okay. So, so that's the whole deal. So, it, but what this did for me is it, it took me out of all my licks. Yeah. And you, your licks are broken in pieces. Uh-huh. Like, you don't... So, it becomes this... You know, the object is to improvise music. Yeah. At least that's, that's, what, that's, my, that's my object. You know, and not, and not all the time, but I, when I want to, I want to be able to go, I want to come up with something new. Right. And this kind of breaks things apart. I still use it as a technique to kind of, like, re-see the neck in a new way. Yeah. Because, you know? you, like, when you're on tour and you're playing in a show and it's the same show every night, you know, you start playing things that are kind of similar. or sure. you, Or at least I have a similar trajectory in my solos. Yeah, and so so that it's healthy. Like to spend, I spend a little time sometimes backstage, you know, playing on a, you know. Once you've figured out what tends to work, it takes quite a bit of courage to yeah do something that you're not sure if yeah. it will work. But that's the thing about that's yeah. the exciting thing about improvisation is mm-hmm. it's risky. Yeah, you know that's the thing, and you can make some clunkers, but you have to have the confidence to go. Yep, just did that. 
It was bad. Yeah, that and also the perseverance to when you've reached one of those plateaus where you're just sick of your own playing and everything you do yeah. sounds terrible. Sometimes you almost have to be cool with sounding worse for a little while yep. as yep. you do these limitations or explorations of a yeah. new new idea framework um yeah so that's really cool it sounds yeah. like there's a lot of good ideas there's in that a lot book. there and then and then he has has you and this is just the key of c so sure then he, then right. he has you yeah. move through then he has you move through the next string the b string yeah so then you learn then you learn that string mm-hmm. then you learn the g you know and you import you do the vamps yeah. and you improvise over the vamps and one, i mean one like string at a time one string at a time, yeah. yeah. And and you don't allow yourself to go to the other strings. <laughs> yeah. you, and you have to make it interesting because uh-huh. you get bored and then you go, how do I make this interesting? Well, I'll do a lot of slides. Right? I'll not uh-huh. take my fingers off the fingerboard. Or I'll use one finger. That's another one. Starts to sound like... Indian music, yeah, because that's yeah. very similar to how they yep they navigate. slide around. Yeah, and he talks about that in the book. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. He said he says you should really listen to some good Indian music. Right. But so what that does, you know, what all these things do is it gives you a lot of tools mm-hmm. for expression. So so when you go to play, you have these you have you have all these slides. You have legato, like you can. You can slide around. You can, and you can do vibrato. You can do bends. You know all that stuff. So, and then yeah, then incredible. you end up then you end up doing combining the pairs of strings into, of course, right intervals mm-hmm. into intervals, and those are typical. But you also do right. Let's see if I remember these. You know seconds. Which aren't useful that much unless you go like, like your. You can do yeah. a half step bend. Getting and, to then, a, and then if you're a, playing in C, um, let's see, you can go. You know, you can combine the second with other stuff and make right. it sound interesting, and it creates tension. So, so all those things, all, all the experimentation gives you tools. Yeah. To 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 um to be expressive and you know that's kind of developing all those tools is what gives you the unique kind of voice. You know, because rather he's than not telling you what to play, he's telling you how to find something. He that doesn't you... tell you diddly. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's the great thing about the book. He he. You, there's notes on a page, and he goes now, and he shows you some of the I think fingerings, uh-huh. and then it's like now go figure all this out, and the other keys. mess around with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you're stuck trying to figure it out. Yeah. That's and the, cool. but but when you have when you're not spoon fed by by tons of tab, and you transcribe yourself, and you have to figure out these scales and all that stuff yourself. It's you learn things in a really ingrained way, and they're yours. They become something you own, not you think, something you purchased or you know, yeah, sort of yours. You yeah, know? it's it's just your style automatically. Yeah, almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you think that's also true? Um, maybe not for your personal style, but as far as learning in a deeper way, the same is true of how you were learning from recordings. Yeah, when you really try to 
drill down on those little slides or is that a slide or is it a hammer on or yeah. when you really get down there yeah and sometimes you just can't tell yeah i mean there were times where i was like okay i'm just gonna call that a slide you know if yeah. i was studying earl or something it sounds like a bend but i don't know if it is or not you know at some point you have to just say that if i'm listening this closely and i can't tell right no one else is gonna know that i'm not right right you that. just do the best you can yeah and 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 be willing to do the work mm-hmm. you know and that's where all the, the best stuff is, when you're really willing to get to the nitty-gritty and imitate something as closely, closely as you can. That's, isn't that the weird thing, though? It's like we, we can become ourselves through imitation. It is the weird thing. That and is weird. I think it's, it's the selection of what you choose to imitate that yeah. is what yeah, if you um, imitate one, focuses in. Imitate yeah. one thing, and you're a clone. Like mm-hmm. it's like people who like Tony Rice is the only guitar player, mm-hmm. and I love Tony Rice to death. He's amazing. But if you study only Tony Rice and learn all of Tony Rice stuff and you can play everything note for note and then you go out and do that in a band, well, people go, wow, he sounds almost as good as Tony Rice, you know, like that. But they don't they don't go, wow, that guy is totally unique. They go, he sounds like Tony Rice. But if you listen to Tony and you like B.B. King and you like the Punch Brothers and you like. Mm-hmm. Red yeah. Smiley's Django rhythm Reinhardt guitar, Django, yeah, right? You mix all that stuff together, then you're then you're getting closer to having something that's that's yours. You know, there's a person who will remain nameless in the Michigan music scene around here who has been not so affectionately named uh, Phony Rice for, oh, right, that, right, for right. that exact same yeah, reason. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what amazes me, like because I grew up hearing people do that, and I would always think, why? You, you know, I would think of the guy, I would think, you have such amazing technique. Mm-hmm. You've developed all this stuff, and, and you can play this stuff dang near exactly like Tony Rice. Why not now start listening to other stuff and develop that? Because that's what Tony did. Yeah. Tony, if you listen to late Clarence and early Tony, they sound really similar. Right. Because Tony was learning off of Clarence. Yeah. And then Tony took that. He didn't stop there and go, well, now I know all of Clarence's stuff, so I'm a great guitar player. He went, well, I need to keep learning. And, and maybe it kept, took someone like David Grisman forcing him to play yep. something that there wasn't a recording yep. of Clarence White playing anything like that exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yeah, um, you have to get out of your comfort zone. Exactly. And yeah, that's what's happened to me in the last several years with Damien O'Kane over in the U.K., oh. really thrown it really at first really threw me out of my comfort zone how have you seen the results of that just in my playing yeah uh well i mean i had to you know he would send me a tune and Mm -hmm. it would be like and he's a to to clarify he's a irish tenor player yeah he's a tenor player and they play with a flat pick Mm -hmm. so he'd send me a tune and i'd be sitting there going and the tune would go and it's fast but i'll play it yeah And I didn't want to do it melodically okay. because it sounds too smooth. Yeah. And he's edgy, so you I wanted to go... more flat picky. Yeah. 
You know, I want it yeah. to sound daka daka. Right. You know, I want it to have that. It's part and, of the style. Yeah. yeah, the aggressiveness of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so I had to, on some of those tunes, I had to go back and go, do I use my first finger there or my second finger on the roll? Then then the roll goes into single string and it's in a, it's in a weird place because it was all different for me. Because, you know, I was used to the sort of traditional bluegrass right hand yeah. combined with string bending and you know and electric guitar left hand stuff kind of thing i was used to my thing so when you get thrown out of your comfort zone like we were talking about with tony and and mm-hmm. grisman then all of a sudden you're you know you're like there's no map for this right you know i mean because now not that not that other people there's plenty of other banjo players that have played you know irish music yeah on yeah. the five string banjo there's lots of them um but the, but the way i wanted to do it was more edgy Mm-hmm. And it's it's more like who I am. It's like not that I'm a really edgy person, but but, <laughs> but you know, it's like but just with the things that the, the gutsy kind of daka daka daka. Sure, that, I sure. love that kind of yeah, that just that thing. attack. Yeah, the attack right. of it. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Deering Banjos, who want you to know that banjo teachers love good times. In a recent survey conducted by Deering. Over 200 banjo teachers were asked, how likely is it that you would recommend the good time banjo to your students? An overwhelming 85% responded that they would, with the number one reason being that good times are easy to play. Even good time ambassador and 2019 IBMA Banjo Player of the Year, Kristen Scott Benson agrees that you will not find a better banjo than this in the price range of the Deering Good Time. With the good time banjos, Deering understands the importance of starting out with a banjo that will help not hinder your banjo learning experience, which is why they make sure that each and every good time banjo leaves looking great, feeling great, and sounding great. For more information and to see exclusive videos from good time ambassadors Kristen Scott Benson and Pete Wernick, head over to DeeringBanjos.com slash Teachers Love Good Times. So a lot of this stuff has focused on, yeah, your knowledge of the fretboard. Let's talk about your rhythm because your name comes up a lot, actually, in these podcasts and almost without fail, it's in context of the warm-ups that you do and the focus yeah, that you've yeah. had on developing your rhythm. What can you say about that? And what what is your system and your warm-up well, technique? Well, early on, I remember getting the crow... And the New South, you know, rounder 44. Mm-hmm. And I read John Hartford's notes on there, and it talked about the space between the notes. You yeah. Know, it talks about J.D. and his space between notes. And, of course, you know, I read that young banjo player, and I went, I want that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're young, you don't go, oh, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm good enough. You just go, I want that. I'm going to do I'm going yeah. to do that. You dive right in. You dive right in. Yeah. And so I would sit there with my, I had a, uh, it, was, it was called a click track. It was just like this little metronome. Mm-hmm. And it, it just made a sound went, you know, like that. Yep. And so I'd have my Sony Walkman headphones on, <laughs> and I'd lay back on my bed, and I would go... Until my sister, who was doing laundry in the garage there, where my room was, she would be like, stop it. <laughs> Just Chinese water torture. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it gave me a sense of, 
like there's the, of the space between the notes uh-huh. you know, at a slow tempo, which later enabled me to play stuff like uh, um, Blue Trail of Sorrow, you know, and that's like, you know, it's so slow. It's slower than that. <laughs> yeah. The record is so slow because you know we were in the studio and Allison said we need to slow it down. We need to slow it down. I was like, Ugh. <laughs> you know. So, but it, it ended up working out because you know I spent, I still spend lots of time with the drum machine every day. Right, and, and yeah. that's I think that's what people refer to typically is they'll, yeah. they'll say you know I see Ron Black warming up for a show and he's playing at eighty BPM. He's not doing this yeah. pedal to the metal stuff yeah. like now, so many of us are I am doing now um, this thing where I um, play you know really kind of like whatever 60 or 40 or you know 60 usually well I don't know where I'm, I'm at that's like faster and I'll do that for a while, you know, mm-hmm. with the drum machine going. But then, then all of a sudden, and I'll watch when I when I play that. I'm looking. I'll look at my right hand and make sure that the my fingers aren't popping up too high or any of that stuff. Like okay. pay real attention and then play a little bit harder. You know, like and make sure each finger resets to the string after it strikes. So it goes strike reset. Every time. If, now, what do you mean reset? Well, Just for well, watch um, like th- ready position? Yeah, basically? watch my thumb. Yeah. So let's let's see. It just it goes ping and it goes right back to the ready position. Interesting. Because that enables speed, right? Yeah. And so then after doing that for a while, I'll pop the speed up to my top speed, which lately hasn't been super high because... The Damien stuff is so complicated in notes that it's not it's not like bluegrass banjo high speed mm-hmm. like one eighty, you know. Yeah. But yeah, but I'll pop my then I'll pop my speed up and try to get my speed, you know, where where it needs to be. But uh, there's a sounds like there's a huge focus on economy of motion. Yeah. And playing more softly at first. Yeah. To focus on the economy and then muscle and down muscle, a little yeah, bit, a little bit but with, you still make sure without losing it yeah, yeah you still make sure when you strike the string that you know you have to have a certain amount of tension in your finger to strike the string mm-hmm. because yeah it's resistance right sure then you strike the string and then you then you reset and let go of the resistance so you don't carry the the tension you don't keep holding the tension in your Hand when huh. you strike, so you, so you can see it. But uh, I'll just do it again. So I got a little tension in my thumb. There, it's out. So it strikes, resets, and goes like this. It yeah. just kind of relaxes, not fully relaxed. It's still ready, but it's more like you know how uh, when when you know they're about to um, do the football play. And they're they're not tensed up standing there. They're like loose. They're like ready to roll. The foot the players in football. Yeah, yeah, but they're still They're they're loose and they're ready, but they're like they're ready to spring into action. And that's uh-huh. what I mean about my fingers. They're not relaxed, but the but they but they reset the tension. The tension goes away when I strike, bam, tension is gone. So my thumb resets, goes to the fifth string. And is waiting there for the next note, and it's yeah. the, and it's not carrying all that tension because otherwise, when you play fast, 
you'll carry that tension and it'll get harder and harder and harder and harder. Oh, sure, sure. And then by the time you're done with the song, your hand hurts. Yeah. And that's that's, that's bad. Wow, that's really interesting. I've never heard anyone talk about this stuff before. This is, yeah, that's really cool. If you watch somebody, like you watch Noam Pakeli play, Uh you know, you see a guy play with, he didn't play with any tension. Right, I which mean, is what's so t- astonishing. Yeah, his about, tone's beautiful. About watching him. His tone's beautiful. His and his like his technique is beautiful, and like he's paid a lot of attention to this stuff. Yeah, know, he really has. And there was a there was a time in the you know all the gigging with Allison, and like a lot of times my role in that band is to play hard mm-hmm. because you know we just got finished playing Restless. And I'm finger picking acoustic guitar, real soft, and I'm pretty, and and it's a pretty song. Well, now you need to rock out. But then now we need to go. Like Uh it's got to really just smack people in the head. Yeah. So, but but doing that in the late '90s and 2000s, like sometimes wasn't good for my right hand technique. I wasn't. I don't think I was sufficiently paying attention to what was happening. So, is this a relatively Recent-ish the, thing the, that you've the, oh, chosen the, to focus on the super focus on it, like because I'm super focusing on it the last five years. Okay, and it's really helping my playing out. Wow. It's really helping me play with more ease and and all that because you know when you play hard all the time, then when you try to play softly, your fingers move too far because yeah. they're used to all that like pressure, and then they hit the note, and then you got to stop them, and right. there's a lot of tension and stress in that. Yeah. And so I'm trying to bring my dynamic back, you know, to mm-hmm. to where I where I can play, you know. You know. Or that, that makes notes pop out mm-hmm. more. When you play like at 4 or 5 and you go You can make You have somewhere instead to, of instead of like some room to go. Yeah, it's like you can make it be sassy that way. Like, yeah. and you do that with dynamics. Yeah. So if you don't have the lower level dynamics, then you have to play harder. So you know, if you're if you're dynamic level from one to ten, if you're playing at seven or eight all the time, you don't have a lot of headroom. Yeah, and it's not going to sound as interesting when, yeah. when there's not as much yeah. variation or like yeah, it's almost like volu- it's almost like amplitude syncopation or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. Um, in a lot of those early Allison records, it do, you do have a tone that sounds like you are playing pretty hard on those. Yeah. Is it, was that pretty typical of pretty typical of your playing? Yeah, yeah. I was. I th- was not not so hard that like like so long so wrong. I wasn't playing so hard on that that like it distorted the tone or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes during live shows, like if I couldn't hear and sure, or I felt sure. like I'd step up to the mic and you and the and the you wouldn't hear the banjo come up out front. I'd go, "It's not even up out front." So it's, you're just doing your best. Yeah, you know? so you, so you're trying to play hard and you know all the, that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. usually on recordings, I would listen for the tone. So yeah. so the tone on the recordings is. Pretty good do you think there's a certain I, I almost liken it to uh, like a good tube amp do you think there's a certain tone that comes with a little more aggression yeah and and yeah strength with the, the yeah picking? it's almost like it's it's almost like an overdrive exactly just very slightly like if you go 
versus there's like a you know there's almost a rattly growl to it and sometimes you want that sure but to play like that all the time is i you know one of the things that happened is when we were playing a lot with union station is i think sometimes you know younger bands took what we did in the bluegrass part and thought they could do the entire their entire show like that but the thing that one of the things that makes a show interesting i mean even going back to like bill monroe is you know they do i mean the variety was crazy with with monroe and flat and scruggs because they would do um you know the gospel acapella song. Yeah, they do the gospel the, acapella. Yeah. There'd be no banjo for two songs, and then Earl would play "You Are My Flower" on the guitar, sure. and then they'd switch back to banjo and do a banjo fiddle tune. Or the and comedy then thing. The comedy yeah. thing. Then they do a full. And it was like it was more about making sure the audience was entertained than uh-huh. the musicians were enjoying playing. You know, yeah. so so there's that element of variety that's really important, and I think if um, you know if younger bands play kind of like hard-edged bluegrass they need to make sure they're inserting a lot of variety because the, the listener will get ear fatigue from this yeah, the listener will get an ear fatigue from that like it'll, i already have ear fatigue from it right now it'll turn in a, <laughs> a whole audience full of your sister saying stop that yeah, that's right i can't that's take exactly, it anymore exactly so so yeah dynamics are incredibly important it's it's kind of surprising that we haven't really touched a whole lot on specific Union Station stuff because that's been such a, a big part of your career. What would your advice be to someone who's in that position where obviously you're not the focus? The focus is this wonderful singer who you play with and delivering right. these songs. How do you have to uh, get your mind around that to, to be a good, dutiful band member in those situations? I think it's the same I think it's the same as when you're in a social situation. And you know in a social situation you, you don't want to be the guy that's always talking. Mm-hmm. And nobody else gets to talk and you're talking about yourself all the time. And then you know cuz you'll you'll go away if you have any kind of like self-awareness at all you'll go away and go and you'll feel weird. Right. It's like I talked the whole time. I wonder what they thought. You know, like you're you're worried about names. it. Yeah. Well, so so you know, playing music, it, it's a social. It is a social situation, mm-hmm. and when you're up there with the band, you're doing this communal thing that has to have really has to have love at its center, because mm-hmm. you have to like you have to love the other players and singers and i mean like you don't you can be mad at i mean you can i mean i'm meaning this in a musical way sure. like so when allison's singing i'm listening to her singing yeah. i'm not going what licks can i play during her singing so that i can get the audience's attention on me and i'm all about like that's why lots of times i just go I play little bits in between the vocal, you know, uh-huh. and I don't, I don't, I'm not going, I'm not playing a bunch of stuff while people are singing because I don't want the attention on me. Uh-huh. What I want to do is establish a solid groove so that it feels good for her to sing over. 
Yeah. And it's the same when Dan or anybody else is singing. I'm trying to establish a groove where they where they get the feeling like I'm being supported. This feels awesome. Yeah. It feels great. And and so that they can do the best job they can. Because the whole, the whole intent of a band is having a band sound. And if you have people in the band that are trying to gain attention for themselves, it will it will begin to destroy the band sound. Sure. So you want to have everybody, and it's hard to get everybody on the same page. And in ACUS, we had that and still do, you know, when, whenever we play again. Right. But, you know, it's like we have people who are concerned with doing the best job they can to make Allison's voice listened to when she's singing. And if Jerry's playing a solo, I want people to listen to him. Right. And if I'm playing a solo, that's my time to step out. You know and that everybody be sorts, there behind Everybody you, yeah. supports me the same way. And it's yeah. like it's about that mutual respect and mutual really loving the other instruments and not mm-hmm. just being absorbed by the sound of the banjo. Like, yeah. And that's one of the things that listening to, like, the, you know, the first Bluegrass album taught me. I loved all the other instruments. You know, and I wanted yeah. to play, at one point I wanted to play fiddle and I wanted to play dobro and I wanted to play, and I played bass a little bit. And, right. You know, it's like I wanted to play everything because I loved all the instruments. I think Dan Tominski's that way too. He loves all the stuff, which is why yeah. he's one of the best rhythm guitar players for my banjo playing. He, yeah, because he right. plays banjo. And so he understands what a banjo needs to have behind it to sound the most kick butt that it can sound. Huh. Right? Because how, rhythm... How would you... Okay, sorry. No, go I was going to say rhythm guitar is so important to the sound of like a banjo solo. If you listen to the Bluegrass album and Crow's playing a solo, well, it's kick butt, but it's Tony's yeah. back there. And of course, the rest of the band's supporting too, but Tony's doing all this kind of stuff in and amongst the banjo notes that just gives it this relentless incredible just catapults it it's to incredible a, to a new level yeah so yeah. A, gr- a great rhythm guitar player is is worth gold to a banjo player well you haven't been fired yet from the band so you must be doing a good job of supporting all those uh, <laughs> i hope so all your other That's right. yeah man this is this is great stuff i really really love in here and hearing you talk about this but let's move on to the to the tools of your trade you definitely specifically said that you wanted to talk about your rich and tailor that you have here so take it away what is this thing well it's in i think it was 90 maybe 95 we were about to record so long so wrong Mm -hmm. and we're not far from it i think and uh and rich and taylor i think they approached me i can't remember if i approached them or they approached me but they gave they gave me this carolina which eventually became the Sonny Osborne model. It's a maple. All right. And, uh, you know, I used it for years. And then, you know, because I'm not uh, especially good at banjo setup. Okay. I'm getting better now. But because I wasn't especially good at it, it sat in the case for a long time. You know, it just got to where I didn't like the way it sounded. Um, But uh, not long ago, maybe a year ago, I took it. Not even that. I took it to Charlie Cushman. Okay. And that guy knows what he's doing. Sure, sure. You know, I got this thing back and went, <laughs> you know, and it's, so I'm playing this a lot lately. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So that was your main instrument for, for how long? I, I mean, all, all the way through, maybe through the 90s. And then I played, I played a, a newer Gibson for maybe a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then I started playing Huber's. And Huber's are workhorse, great banjos. Sure. They're just really good banjos. Yeah. You have a signature model, don't you? I do. Okay. I call it the me model. 
the meme. <laughs> the mini me. Right? The me model. <laughs> Just to hash out what you like about this Rich and Taylor, you said it's a maple banjo. Is that? Yeah. Did you say that? Okay. It's maple. It's all. It's the whole thing, and it's it's beautiful. Um, it's pretty. Get the gold's pretty worn by now, and I have the uh, the Ricard ten to one tuners on it. Oh yeah, what which you, I really love them. I, I've been that's been on top of my list for a They're while, great. and I just haven't quite gotten around to it. Yeah, partly because I I do use Keith tuners, so I'll right, have to find yeah. an alternate for yeah. for yeah, that. You don't want ten to one with a Keith tuner. Your elbow's going to be all over the place. Yeah, quarter quarter tone at a time. Yeah. Um, so what else are you partial to gear wise? Do you have like a bridge and a tailpiece and a head and picks uh, that you that you swear you by? You know, um, I, I've been using old nationals. I find them every once in a while. I have a friend that supplies me with those. He sees my supplier. You got the stuff, man. I got the stuff, yeah. man. <laughs> All right. So, so every once in a while, I'll buy a couple sets of them. You know, they're expensive. And which, but which type of old nationals are you we know, talking? Honestly, I don't even know. I don't know that. See, this is this is what's bad about me. When I was growing up, uh-huh. there were often people around me that were so into the details of all that stuff. Right. That, and, of course, I was kind of an extreme one way or the other person. And I went, well, but they don't sound like J.D. Crow with that bridge because they don't practice. Right? So you can't just put a bridge and use the right picks and sound like J.D. Crow. It's like, so I was like, well, you got to play. But it, in reality, it's both. you got to know your instrument. you got to know how to set it up. And you got to... <laughs> Learn learn how to get produced tone. You have to learn all of it. So anyway, I'm not real hip on a lot of stuff. So I was asking Charlie Cushman the last time I was up there. Now show me exactly what to do to make it sound for the setup stuff. Yeah, for yeah. setup stuff. You know, so he he showed me a few things, and you know I can do basic stuff, but to get things to tip top shape like he does, it's kind of a mystery still to me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which is. He probably intentionally leaves it a bit of a mystery. He doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't want to undercut himself. Yeah, right? yeah. But he did. He did. Yeah, he showed me enough. He showed me plenty to keep going. I, and of course, I go. Well, I don't want to. I like to play. Mm-hmm. That's the main thing. And I generally don't adjust my banjo until it sounds bad. Yeah, that makes sense. That's approximately my approach as well. I'm not yeah. going to do any major surgery, but yeah. Yeah, I can I can tweak it. Yeah, tweak it. Tur- turn it. a wrench here and there. So yeah, I don't know what the picks are. Okay, yeah, they're, but they're no, old they're and old, they say old, national on them. They're old national, they say national, and I can't see in this light what it, uh, I think it's patent pending something or other. Right on. I know, there's, I, a, I know there's a website that gets into real details, granular so. detail about yeah. how the numbers look and, and right. how to tell them. So That's whatever, right. if you're curious. Yeah. What about your thumb pick? Looks uh, like it's a blue chip. Cool. Yeah, blue chip, and uh, yeah, I like them a little bit shorter than the standard JD thumb pick. Yeah. So, how do you do? You have to file that down, or is no, that something he, that's available? Well, I don't know if it's available, but he does it for me. Okay. You know, he's he's you know occasionally, I'll I'll just say, hey, can I get three of those with a sh- slightly short? It's like only a millimeter shorter or two millimeters, something like that. It's not very much. And often. is that because um, almost of what you were already? Talking about the the economy of motion, it allows yeah. you to yeah. hit that sweet spot of the thumb pick without too e- much lateral. Exactly, okay. and the um, blue chips that for me now they, the the tang kind of it comes back. You know the part that sticks out. It it kind of comes back just a hair too far for me, but I'm used to it now. Okay, I'm used to it now. But what I grew up with was if you look at that pick, yeah. The the this part of it would be kind of right underneath the 
part that goes around my thumb. Like yeah. when I hold my thumb up and down, it's a know, little off to the it's right. It's off. It's off to the you know off to the right side. Um, whereas I would have it interesting. I would have it over like two millimeters, mm-hmm. three millimeters. But that's being nitpicky. But so I'm even now, to, you would prefer it like probably. Like that. But but you know I again I'm I'm nitpicky about you know what I would prefer, but I'm not always nitpicky about what I have to have, you know, because sure. I, I'm used to this now and it works. It works fine. And they sound, I like how they sound. Mm-hmm. I like, I like that they sound like. They sound different enough than the finger pick, but they also sound similar enough. It's not a soft, uh, like a plastic thumb pick. But I just it, got tired. It, I think the other thing is I got tired of the maintenance. Of, of the plastic of ones. plastic ones. I just, mm-hmm. I again, it's like trying to streamline all the extra work of stuff, right? You know, to where yeah. I can, it's it's like blue chip blue chip picks streamline streamline that for me, right? Where where I don't where it's not a tortoiseshell and I'm where I'm going. Okay, I gotta now it's getting worn in a weird way. Yeah. yeah, it's not yeah. going to be the same, and it changes, and then you you it wears out, and then you got to do a new one, and then you go, wow, it feels huge, and sure. So sure. the the um. The blue chips are just really consistent and really high quality. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, did you say anything about bridge or tailpiece or head Not really. or anything like that? I, or you this, this, roll with whatever? Yeah. But I have a 26 Granada, and it's got a different tailpiece. And But this, whatever this bridge is, who uh, Charlie Cushman told me. It doesn't he, have a... He a, gets them from... Doesn't have a stamp on it or I, anything? No, but I for, okay. now I forget who okay. he gets them from. But it's Charlie Cushman gets... You know, uses these. It's and whatever the one he recommends. Yeah, you know. if, if he put it on there, I go. He knows what he's talking. Yeah, about. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a reliable. Uh, yeah, source, yeah, it's I reliable suppose. and it sounds good. Yeah, yeah, it sure does. Uh, how about like stage setup or microphones? Do you have a, a personal preference on any of that? You know, not really. Uh, I, I, uh, I do like the. I think they have at the Opry. I always like those Neumanns they have. They have like the, um, I forget what they are. I can't remember the the small condensery things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're they're actually the the bigger. Oh, are they? The, okay. Slightly bigger, and they always just crack. They sound good, but I think we use with Allison. We use a Shure, and it sounds good. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's a it's that mic that has the red screen. It's a side address. Has the red, red screen, screen. Those are uh, what is, is that a called? ribbon mic? I don't know. Okay. I'm, I'm terrible. Yeah. I'm terrible. I'm pretty um, good with it, but I haven't kept up uh, yeah. as, as well recently. So. Uh, and then with Damien O'Kane, I, I plug in and use a mic. And then Josh Clark, who does the sound, he I, he always uses as much of the mic as possible. Yeah. So, but, the, but, the, but the extra, you know, little bottom end stuff comes from the pickup. And he can get that way if if it's a loud room and if people are drinking lots of Guinness, or whatever. <laughs> Does that know? happen over in Ireland? Sometimes, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. We're uh, we're basically out of time. Any any other tips or things that you wanted to make sure that you said for for other players? Or, um, I mean, we covered a lot of great. Yeah, we stuff. did. We did. Um, you know, one thing that I did a lot and I still do is play with records. Like, uh, you know, I was just playing with the, yeah.
know, like I kind of got off it on it. I, I, it's easy for me to improvise, and then all of a sudden I go, I'm not playing the thing that you know, Earl's break. Okay. But it started out as kind of Earl's break. Um, oh, if I should wander back tonight. Oh yeah, yeah right. Okay. Uh, so I play with records, and then I try to imitate the player as exactly as possible. Huh. I still do that. It's almost like acting or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, and you try to you, – you, I remember being a kid and, like, playing with, let's say, the Bluegrass album mm-hmm. and um, Blue Ridge Cabin Home, and I would try to pretend that I was J.D. J.D.? Crow. I would try to just, like, put – you put that on uh-huh. and go – and you stand there and you're like – and you try to have that same attitude that it feels like, you know? I, I think that's a good learning tool. It's it like, is, It's like yeah. visualizing something. You know? I talked to Sammy Sheeler recently, and he said that he used to play, uh, I forget what it was, um, some Terry Balcom recording or something yeah. like that. And he used to stand there, and he even got himself trained to do all the capo switching right. in between the gaps in the songs. <laughs> That's great. Like, yeah, almost yeah. like he was playing a set with them. Yep, uh, yep. I think it was, must, must have been like that Boone Creek, uh, yeah, one of yeah. the Boone Creek records yeah. that he played along with so much that yep. he... He was ready for the kickoff yeah. of the yeah. next song. That's great. The, pra- that's yeah. incredible practice like mm-hmm. that. What do you have in like a, I don't know, some sort of greatest hits of play along albums yeah. that have really helped you in some yeah, way? Yeah, Foggy Mountain Banjo, of course. Sure. That's a great one. And then a lot of the Flat and Scrug stuff, you mm-hmm. know. I always listen for the most solid stuff, the stuff that's really super solid in terms of the timing, which most of it is, but, you know, some of it's better than other stuff. Um, do, you, uh, do you retune your banjo for Foggy Mountain Banjo? That's what always annoys me about playing no. along with that one. What's that? No. What because, do you mean? Because Amazing Slowdowner, that's why. Oh, so you retune the, the yeah. record and you... Yeah. Okay. I just like... You know, I put all the songs into Amazing Slowdowner and then um, tune it to standard. Or, or I tune. Sometimes I might tune my banjo up, and then as long as it stays, you know, I don't want to tune for every song. Yeah, that's what. Like that's, that's the what, problem that's with the like hitch, yeah. yeah all the all the old stuff. There was they were just like you know all over the Jimmy, place. give me a <laughs> you know they'd be like of course yeah they're halfway in between. G yeah, and the, G the guitar just came out of the cold. Yeah, you know, of course. So, and uh, so th- there's Foggy Mountain banjo, and then Jimmy Martin, big and co- big and country instrumentals. That's another killer record to play along with, and then lots of the Jimmy Martin stuff is the timing of it is great. Yeah, uh, bluegrass albums, you know. Like one, two, three, four. Just you know, yeah. They're all killer. Um, what else? What else do I use? Anything. I, list, I always did. I listened for anything that just had solid timing. Because some things don't. You know, some mm-hmm. things are some things are nice. Like the vocal, there are other elements that are nice. Like some, there are some bluegrass records where the vocals are really nice, but the timing isn't as solid as, let's say, Jimmy Martin or yeah, yeah. some other thing. It's more floaty, a little bit more floaty. Right. right, so there's other things to appreciate about you know other bands, mm-hmm. but when you're when you're talking about practicing banjo timing, you know I I always go for stuff that's super solid and yeah. just just kicks butt. Yeah. It doesn't have to be perfect, you know. Like I think that's one it, of the it th- never will be. Yeah, really, and no. I, well, I think one of the things in our modern sort of 
culture that was created by Pro Tools was like the excessive overdubbing, and I did some of it. You mm-hmm. know, like the excessive trying to get everything perfect. Yeah. And my favorite records aren't that way. Lots of right. my, lots of my lots of my favorite stuff. If you listen to it, you go, oh, they slow down a little bit there right before the chorus, and oh, and they pick back up during the banjo break. So that, but the but they do it together. Mm-hmm. And so the timing is solid. It's still you can still play along with it, and it, and it can add butt. excitement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like we were talking about with learning a new skill. It's hard to hear yourself maybe sound not quite as good as you're learning something new. In yeah. the same way, it's it's hard to have an engineer ask you, "Do you want to tune your vocals up five cents right. and really lock <laughs> it in?" It's hard to say no to that. Sure, and, yeah, and, yeah. But um, I agree. Almost any anyone would agree. Like those, I don't know, the Beatles albums. Yeah. Are, are full of yeah weirdness that, well, that if, would never fly out of a now, professional studio. Today. Well, did you ever see the? There's a uh, YouTube of um, and some mock up of the voice, and it's wow. like, and it shows, uh, it shows, and now a new singer from I forget from Liverpool, and it shows John Lennon singing Imagine, and they've cut, and it's actually John oh, Lennon singing. Okay, but they've cut in all the judges. And they're just sitting there, like, kind of like, oh, what do we do? It's not very good. And, and that's exactly you know, and they right. And have this attitude, you know, like, you know, and then, and then he goes up, starts to go up high uh-huh. for a second, and then they are all putting their hands over the button. They're waiting for, like, a big vocal, you know, flourish, technical yeah. flourish. And, and, and then he doesn't do it, so they, you know, and then he finishes and they go, well, you know, the song just, it just kind of didn't really go anywhere. And, right. Right. So, and then and then it cuts to a uh, it's a, it's going to cut to a commercial. It says next up a, a young singer from Brooklyn named Bob Dylan. You know, oh, and yeah. then it shows them rolling their eyes. But it makes the point that it's not necessarily perfect technique or perfect timing that makes great music. Right, it's not. It isn't. And uh, you want to aim for those things. You want to ma- try to master technique. You always uh-huh. want to be. I'm always working on technique. I, I like to and and keeping it in tune, my technique in tune, where it you know feels good, um, because then that frees me up to do what I want. But to be obsessive about being perfect, that's it's not even human, really. No, it's not human. And I think I think um, if if young bands aren't careful, they get too obsessive about it. And what that is is really fear of what people think. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that has to do with going. Well, it's got to be you know, perfect or I'm going to get criticized. Yeah. You know, but then you can make it, I've done it where I've been at home overdubbing a guitar solo and I'll just do it one more time. Oh, I messed up that one note. Oh, there was a buzz on that string. Sure. And you do that. And so, you know, solo number 17, you go, okay, that one doesn't have anything in it. That's bad. And then you listen, you go, uh, but I don't feel anything when I listen to this. Just go back (laughs) to take one. Yeah. You just sucked all the the life out of it. And, and you can do that if you over, if you overdub too much, like, and that's why that voice clip is so amusing, is because we all know that it's totally true. Yeah, that the yeah, yeah that's so, absolutely what would happen. Yeah, if, there's, if and there's John so Lennon. much bluegrass that that uh, I still listen to. They're, they're timeless records that I've listened to them for forty years. Right. That when if you sat in and you thought, okay, would this go all go on a Pro Tools grid? You know, not even no, close. not yeah. even close. Right. It wouldn't even close. And and the tempo changes and goes up and down, but the timing is kick butt. 
mm-hmm. it's great to play with, feels great, and that's that's what's important. And you, so, and it, yeah, and you like listening to it. Yeah, so playing with the records, um, I, I did a lot and still do play with a drum machine or metronome. And then the other thing is just play solo and try to and record yourself and try to make it feel as good as possible. And then listen back and go, is it making me do that thing where I where I tap my feet or I nod my head to uh-huh. the to the beat? Is it doing that? And if not, why not? And if not, why not? And yeah. let me try it again and see if I can do that thing. Yeah. You know? Really cool. Yeah, yeah. So despite this being a banjo podcast, you just released a, a guitar album. Why don't you right. why don't you pitch what you have going on and tell people how to find you on the on the internet? And yeah. I um well I, I first of all I have I do have new banjo music. You know, fairly new. It's the Damien O'Kane Ron Block band and that too. stuff. Yeah. And that's called Banjophony. And uh-huh. it's um, it's not me playing Irish music. It's it's both of us writing for both of us. Mm-hmm. So so it's like it's a blend. It's not it's not uh, strict one way or the other. So there's bluegrassy stuff, but it's still Irishy. I always write with him in mind, and he writes with me in mind. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, so I have that. Uh, and I've been touring that with him and that's available on iTunes and anywhere, you know, basically anywhere. All the if, places. If you want the CDs, you can order off of my website, ronblock.com or off of uh, pure records website over in the UK. If you happen to be in the UK. Yeah. And then the, the, the latest thing I have is I, uh, Allison said to me, I think it was last year. Uh, she said, why don't you record an album of, you know, sort of, you know, she said, you know, when you play your guitar and it's like you're just kind of meditatively you're just, or you're just kind of playing and it's meditative, you know, mm-hmm. guitar playing. Why don't you just do a, a whole album of that stuff? And so that's what I did. I uh, after the tour was over in 2018, I um, just got the most high quality mic that I could use, which was a requisite audio L7 and um, used my 38 herringbone. And uh, I'd get up early, and lots of times I'd watch the sun come up, come through the kitchen window, and and I'd be reading stuff that made me feel peaceful and huh. restful, and uh, stuff that was really full of faith and confidence, and yeah. great stuff. And then I would go down, I would go down and get out my guitar and play from that feeling of peace, and then I would start playing around with ideas, maybe read a poem or a, or something that kind of inspired a feeling. And then I would play from that feeling. So it's called it's yeah. called the light so fair, peaceful guitar instrumentals. And it's made for people who, you know, it's made for the soccer mom that's, you know, frazzled, and gets home and has to make dinner and needs something to chill to. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's made for it's made for the guy driving to work and he's got to have an unpleasant conversation with his boss. It's, you know, it's 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 and it's made to listen to as well, like really listen to. There's a lot of nuance to it, and the tone is really, really beautiful. Like yeah. The, that guitar is a great guitar. There's so. a lot of stuff in the world that ramps up the anxiety in yeah. people, and it's nice to have something that maybe doesn't do that or counteracts yeah, it. Yeah. That was the idea, was to try to have the feeling of peace, write from that feeling of peace, record the whole thing right then. So everything was recorded right as I composed it, and then kind of came up with an arrangement. It was all one thing. Mm-hmm. The morning time, the making stuff up, and then coming up with an arrangement, and then recording another guitar afterward. Yeah, that was all one piece, and so it. I think it gives it. It translates. There's like a well. purity to the. Yeah, 
I'm to, getting to good feedback of off it. of yeah. that. I'm getting good feedback from people off that. It just released yesterday, so right. and it's on. That's only on uh, Ronblock.com, okay. and and also uh, uh, RabbitRoom.com. That's, okay, that's another site it's on. But that's only as a download right now. But mine, you can get the CD or download, and there's deals on three CDs or whatever. You know, you can. Some Black Friday deals. Black Friday deals. <laughs> Consumerism. Yeah, that's right. Um, and when so the the stuff that Allison had heard you doing, it wasn't even compositions. It was just you kind Me of messing around, noodling. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I okay. do. I'll, you know, on the banjo, it'd be it'd be like if I was sitting here going. Uh, Just messing around. Part two, banjo meditation. <laughs> banjo uh, meditations. Yeah, yeah coming yeah. coming soon. That's right. Hey, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk to me, and the, it's some great stuff. I, I can already tell that I'm gonna be watching my right hand for all those things <laughs> that you talked about. Probably drive myself crazy, yeah, but yeah. hopefully it'll be for the yeah, for just, the better. You only want to do that stuff for. You know, moments of intense focus, uh-huh. and then and then when you like when I'm if I'm playing a show, I'm not thinking about that stuff at all. I'm sure, just going sure. for it. You know, it's like but in the in the practice room, I get really focused. Like yeah, that. when you can be disciplined and everything. Yeah, yeah. Hey, well, much appreciated. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been you great. Bet. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast featuring Ron Block. Thank you once again to the Patreon supporters of this episode, Joshua Stewart and Dan Biger. If you would like to be a, a Patreon supporter, check out the page at patreon.com slash banjo podcast. You heard several sound clips in this episode and in order, they were the tune called Smartville performed by Ron Block, Funky Chicken performed by John Hickman and Byron Berline. Battersea Skillet Liquor, performed by Ron Block and Damien O'Kane. Little Darlin' Palamine, performed by Flatten Scruggs, of course. And Big Country, performed by Jimmy Martin. You can contact the show by emailing pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And that's all I got for now, everyone. Take care of yourselves. Stay safe and happy and sane. And take care of each other and keep playing that banjo. I talk, I can talk a lot.